I am a bad guy. And I love it. Oh, life is good when you're the bad guy. There's just something visceral about hearing the booze, feeling the hate run through me. More! Draft Pete Cheat just could not help himself. Just couldn't take it anymore. And I'm not surprised. At this point, every time Draft Pete Cheat sends me a tweet, all I see is a dick pic. If I was you, I would take a hand and rest it. The six dick pics really look desperate. He's been hiding underground for weeks, letting goons with proto-human beefing skills speak on his behalf and speak very poorly with, with bad audio quality. <laughs> but he's back! Tilting as usual on Twitter. He just couldn't handle it anymore. He couldn't take it. He had to be heard. And his only outlet to express himself is this little Twitter machine. These little bubbles that you can tweet 240 characters into. Tweet, tweet. That's the sound I hear whenever Draft Pete Cheat subtweets me. Because that's what he's doing. He's not even adding my handle to the tweets anymore. That's how terrified he has become. He wants no part of me, won't even add my Twitter handle. Just a blatant subtweet. This time, sleuthing Roto Grinders. He's all over Roto Grinders, right? He's supposed to be over at the DFS Elite Guru Army Mafia thing. Why is he over at Roto Grinders sleuthing around in the fine print on the First Mover podcast? And he finds, aha! Aha! I've got him! I've got him, everybody! I got him! I got him! In the Roto Grinders podcast feed, there's a disclaimer stating that podcast hosts are also DFS players themselves. Not so much. The Podfather, which is often the case, is the exception to the rule. I'm on another plane. We talked about this already. I'm changing the game. I don't even play. This is something to be celebrated. But no, no, let's cry about it not fair. This guy gets to have a show about DFS and not even play. He doesn't have to nuke his Sunday morning. He can go to brunch and still do five fantasy football shows throughout the week. It's not fair. (laughs) Oh, I retweeted it on my timeline. A pity retweet so that all listeners can enjoy as I have. At R underscore Lee 304 writes... I've lost a lot of respect for at Evan Silva doing a podcast with the Podfather. Fantasy Mansion is an embarrassment to the fantasy industry. A lot of respect for Evan Silva was lost. He had a significant quantity of respect stored up for Evan Silva, and most of it's lost. And I'm an embarrassment. That's right, embarrassment. Oh, man. They have no idea. They have no idea that they are responding more perfectly than I could have invented in fiction. And Draft Beat Cheat replies, oh, yes, with an emoji fist raised. There are many that feel like you do, Ryan. Thank you for giving them a voice against the tyranny and the oppression of the Podfather. He must be stopped. Hashtag resist. I added that last part. And the tears. Although I do like to imagine Draft Pete Cheat tweeting through tears. Just remember, you're not mad at me. You're mad at yourself for playing Calvin Ridley in cash. Stop lashing out and be better. That's all I ask. Stop lashing out on social media 
and be better. And one of the ways to get better is to stop using the noisiest metrics on the board. And one of the noisiest metrics is Snapshare. We saw this last week with Josh Reynolds. Josh Reynolds led all Rams receivers in snaps. One catch for 19 yards on one target. One. Arguing Josh Reynolds was a cash play in DFS based on Snapshare was bad process. Even Brandon Cooks was a dangerous cash play last week because the Rams could easily find themselves up 25 in the second half and stop throwing. And that's what happened. Brandon Cooks still scored a touchdown. So you got away with it, but he only had five targets. Bad process, good result for Brandon Cooks. Bad process, bad result for Josh Reynolds. The Rams were up 22-7 at the half, and Malcolm Brown rolled up more yards than Todd Gurley. Those are not the games to play Rams receivers. This week, however, this is the week to play Rams receivers. The game total on Packers-Rams is 56.5. And Green Bay has an above-average rush defense, so the Rams will have to throw to compete in this game. They did not have to throw to compete in the last game. That's the difference. Josh Reynolds will be usable this week. He's a fringy upside flex play in seasonal leagues, and he's a GPP play in DFS, but his ownership will be lower because of recency bias. Oh, fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on... Well, I won't be fooled again. That's the mentality, and you need to fight that mentality, to fight back against this inherent desire to build lineups in a state of fear. Fear Fear-based decisions are not the path to fantasy championships. Be the bad guy. Play Josh Reynolds. But don't play him because he logged the most snaps in week seven. You play him because he logged the most snaps in one of the most efficient offenses that is projected to score the most points in the league this week in what should be a shootout. That's the reason you contextualize the Snapshare. Because while Snapshare is very noisy, I mean, it is one of the noisiest stats. It's the Roy Hallou corollary. We talked about this five years ago with Roy Hallou. Out-snapping Alfred Morris, and yet Alfred Morris out-touching him by a wide margin and out-producing him in fantasy football. It was maddening to watch because Roy Hallou is more athletic than Alfred Morris. I believe that on any given touch, Roy Hallou was giving you more than Alfred Morris in Washington and still didn't matter. They were feeding Alfred Morris the actual carries, especially those around the goal line that matter. Snapshare is such a red herring for running backs, we took it off the running back game log. Minions have tweeted me, hey, can you show the Snapshare on the running back game log tab? And my answer is no, you don't need it. Just look at the touches. The Snapshare isn't only irrelevant for running backs, it's actually a trap. It goes beyond noisy all the way out to the furthest extreme false signal. That's the whole reason why Marlon Mack was not heavily owned in DFS last week that Naheem Hines outsnapped him in his first game back from a serious hamstring injury. What mattered is that he logged more touches than Naheem Hines regardless of the empty calorie snaps. The same is true for wide receivers. Targets are more important than routes. Routes more important than snaps. But there are a couple instances where understanding a player's snap share helps create more accurate fantasy projections. I'm thinking first about tight ends. Because a tight end is not competing with a lot of other tight ends on the field for targets. Josh Reynolds has to compete with Robert Woods and Brandon Cooks for targets on any given play. When he's third or fourth in the read progression, the odds that Jared Goff ever gets to him and opts to throw to him are lower than Woods and Cooks. 
Not so with the tight end. If the tight end is leading his team in snap share, that means that he's predominantly the number one tight end option in the read progression. It's not like Baker Mayfield is looking first at Seth DeValve, and then when Seth DeValve is in open, he goes to David Njoku. No, it's David Njoku, David Njoku, David Njoku. And when plays are called for the tight end, most famously, Dwight Clark in the back of the end zone, the team's primary tight end is most likely the one catching that pass. And in Cleveland, David Njoku's been scoring touchdowns. David Njoku's snaps and routes and targets have surged in the last few weeks. And so has his fantasy production. And we're seeing the same with Vance McDonald. Vance McDonald is discount David Njoku. Put their profiles next to each other. They're a lot more similar than they look. After Travis Kelsey, who are the two best yak tight ends in the league? It's David Njoku, who somehow, someway, posted more than 11 yards after the catch per reception in his final year at Miami. The signature college football wow stat of my lifetime. And Vance McDonald, who has been bulldozing linebackers and defensive backs whenever he gets his hands on the ball this season. Go check the Vance McDonald highlight reel from 2018. All you will see is yak, 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 yakety yak, don't talk back, E-I-E-I-O, Vance McDonald had a yak farm. I can't believe I just combined two children's songs into one Vance McDonald sports take. You ain't gonna rock and roll no more, yakety yak. Don't talk back. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm on fire right now. And look at the snap shares on Vance McDonald. 45, 51. He's rotating series with Jesse James early in the season. Then suddenly 65%, 65% again. Then in week six, 71.6%. That snap share represented a real breakthrough for Vance McDonald. And he went out and he ran 25 routes in that game. Turn those 25 routes into eight targets, seven receptions for 68 yards. A high usage, high efficiency week in week six. The first week in which Vance McDonald was thrust into a true primary tight end role for the Steelers. The last time Vance McDonald operated in a primary tight end role for the Pittsburgh Steelers was a playoff game last year against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Know what he did in that game? You don't? Oh, well, let me tell you. 10 receptions on 16 targets for 112 yards. 16 targets. How many tight ends in the league right now have a game, a game, a game on their resume with 16 targets? <laughs> spoiler alert, not many. Let's do the spoiler alert sounder just because. Shh. Spoiler alert. So a tight end, it matters, and it's intuitive. As long as a tight end is on the field, he has an opportunity to score fantasy points. Just get him on the field especially in the red zone. This is why we want our tight ends to look like Vance McDonald, 265 pounds, who run a sub 4740 Size, speed, run blocking, the full suite of skills to get on the field and stay on the field. And Vance McDonald is getting on the field and he's staying on the field for one of the NFL's highest scoring offenses. That's why I'm starting Vance McDonald in all leagues and I'm playing him in DFS in all formats, cash, tournament, whatever. He's the guy, especially on FanDuel. And what a lot of people don't know about FanDuel is that there's a lot of free money out there. They're trying to coax new players to their platform, and they're doing it by just giving money away. They did a Red Dead 2 Redemption tournament on Thursday night. I don't know what that means. I don't know what Red Dead 2 Redemption is, but it's a free play tournament where they're giving away $1,000. They have a free play pick'em game, a free play survivor game. So just go to FanDuel every week and see what's free and play. It's also a great loophole. 
technically we're not playing DFS. We're going to brunch while still getting in on the action. And Snapshare also helps to contextualize cornerback play. I saw this last week. Quan Williams, he's top 25 corner on Pro Football Focus. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Quan Williams? A top 25 cornerback on Pro Football Focus? How? Because Pro Football Focus player grades are not weighted based on Snapshare. They're not weighted based on Snapshare, and they're not weighted based on target share. They're essentially not opportunity weighted, which severely diminishes their utility. The idea that a part-time cornerback like Quan Williams would be ranked behind full-time outside cover corners like A.J. Boye, Richard Sherman, Casey Hayward, Morris Claiborne, Ronald Darby, Joe Hayden doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. But you can see how it happens. A nickel corner is going to be burned less frequently than a full-time outside corner. There's just less opportunities to fail if you're not a full-time player. That's why on our cornerback pages, we have target rate. And target rate factors into our coverage rating and our cornerback rankings. Our cornerback rankings are unprecedented in their utility for fantasy football because we factor in the cornerback's role and usage rate into our rankings. So, of course, Quan Williams isn't ranked ahead of Richard Sherman and A.J. Boye. But Pro Football Focus isn't claiming to have cornerback rankings. Their player grades are player grades. And they are helpful when grading player performances for what they are. Of course, they're helpful. Who doesn't want more data on players? Data that only people focused on charting that particular position in a given week could possibly illuminate. But when the data is misused and provided out of context... It can become just as powerful a red herring as Josh Reynolds' snap share. And I know I've said this before, but just our cornerback rankings alone are worth the entire annual player profiler subscription. Jordy Nelson has been thrust into the number one wide receiver chair in Oakland. And in that flanker role, he'll be matched up with Nate Hairston. Nate Hairston is ranked outside the top 100 cornerbacks on player profiler. From target separation to yards per target allowed, catch rate, passer rating, coverage rating, he's outside the top 50. That matters for Jordy Nelson. Quan Williams ranks outside the top 50 in target rate, yards per target allowed, passer rating, coverage rating, and fantasy points allowed per cover snap. When Quan Williams is on the field, and he'll be matched up this week with Larry Fitzgerald, he allows fantasy points to be scored, and Larry Fitzgerald's hamstring is healthy. This matters. And the receiving yards overs on my bookie for both Larry Fitzgerald and Jordy Nelson are my co-locks of the week for all sports gamblers. So just go to the Larry Fitzgerald player page on playerprofiler.com. Look to the right. See Larry Fitzgerald props on my bookie. Click the link. Set up a my bookie account. And when you do, use the promo code UNDERWORLD for $25 in free play bucks and a 100% signing bonus. <laughs> right? And in a game of receiving yards roulette, you can't lose this week. Put all your money on red and bet on Larry Fitzgerald. Or even better, put it on Jordy Nelson. Always bet on black. You know, the Oakland Raiders. Not Jordy Nelson. I, Yes, I know. Jordy Nelson is very, very white. God, I fucked this whole segment up. Let's just play the snipe sound. You ever play roulette? On occasion. Let me give you a word of advice. Always bet on black. Or in this case, a white receiver wearing a silver and black jersey. Arr! And if I was playing fantasy football for my life, 
the one analyst I would bet on to win a matchup for me, Evan Silva. That's right. Evan Silva from Roto World is here right now. Let's go talk to him and be sure to follow him at Evan Silva on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program, a show favorite and the reigning king of the underworld. He is the all-time leader in show appearances. No one will catch him because we love him too much and always have him on multiple times per season. You know who it is. Of course, it's Evan Silva from Roto World. Talk to me, Evan. Yeah, and it's very good to be back on with you, Matt Kelly. You know, the last time that we did a podcast together, it was schematic atrocities and to this day i'm very proud of that show it is still listenable because so many of the same themes have recurred into this year so if you're a listen listener to this particular podcast um, i would recommend finding hugh jackson full colon schematic atrocities somewhere on the internet and listening to that one because as far as i'm concerned that was some of your best work matt kelly and some of my best work, and I put a ton of time going back and watching freaking 2017 Browns games for that. And now here we are, and Larry Ogan freaking Joby oh. is having a monster breakout year, and Duke Johnson is still being criminally underutilized, and I love every damn minute of it. The show holds up. Talk about a show from January that holds up, because very little in fantasy football holds up a week much less eight months, nine months, ten months. But sure enough, as these months tick by, that show continues to hold up. And another thing we talked about in the offseason was that there will be an analytics renaissance in the NFL. We're just not sure when it's going to be. We can feel it. You can just sort of feel the movement percolating beneath the surface. And now it's out in the light. And we're not going back. I think this is a genie that's out of the bottle that cannot be put back, that everyone from Roger Goodell on down, has to love this new NFL with less vicious defenses, fewer injuries, more scoring, higher viewership. Everyone is winning with this new NFL, right? I think so. I mean, this has been one of the most exciting seasons that I've covered since starting to write about the NFL 12 years ago or whatever. And it's not just because of the rule changes. I know that people focus on the rule changes, but it's because teams recently have started to hit on quarterbacks in the draft. I mean, the NFL went through about a decade from 2006 through 2014 or 2015, where the first round quarterback hit rate was like 30%. And then recently, Jake Locker, Jake Locker, Christian Ponder, Blaine Gabbert, I mean, the list, Brandon Whedon, um, JP Lossman. um, And then recently with guys like Jared Goff and Patrick Mahomes and Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson, we've had some very exciting young quarterbacks enter the league and, and teams are becoming more innovative. You know, the, the common theme early in the season, the past few years was how bad the offensive lines were. And it was true. Teams early in the year could not even function on offense because of how bad their offensive lines were playing, but coaches are doing a better job of scheming around that. The young quarterbacks have been able to overcome bad lines because we are getting more athleticism at the position, and and teams are becoming more open to embracing athleticism at the position after for so many years wanting their quarterbacks to fit this box stereotype as pocket passers. Go back and listen to some segments of the show from this past season on YouTube. 
YouTube.com, search Roto Underworld. And if you search Roto Underworld and Patrick Mahomes, you will hear a segment we did about the system that Andy Reid planned to install for Patrick Mahomes. Andy Reid came out and publicly talked about using air raid concepts from Texas Tech specifically to maximize Patrick Mahomes' comfort level under center, and especially when he's standing back there in shotgun. But it's not just Andy Reid and the Chiefs. It's teams across the league are installing these college concepts that the Jared Goffs and the Mitchell Trubisky's are comfortable running. They know these concepts better than anyone because that's what they ran at the college level. And so now you're seeing this, especially in Los Angeles. That's the the shining example of this quarterback-coach mind meld where it's really a partnership. It's no longer dictator, you run the play, I call. No, if you watch any of the documentaries, the behind the scenes, Sean McVay working with Jared Goff, it is very much a partnership. It is not a command and control style offense. And it makes sense. It makes sense that when there's a collaborative effort to call plays and execute plays with the coach and the players, that hello, your success rate's going to go up. And now every week, the Rams are implied to score 30 points. I love this. I love this. So the scoring is driven by a number of factors. It's not only the rule changes. It's not only the health of veteran quarterbacks. It's this influx of quality quarterbacks from the college ranks, and it's more effective schemes, more effective play calling, and more bravery from offensive coordinators and head coaches going forward on fourth down and keeping these drives alive. It's all part of this one unified story. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage uh, any listener to check out the take cast with Davis Maddock, where he interviews uh, an offensive coordinator at the college level um, regarding the air raid. And the guy was talking about because, you know, coaches when, you know, coaching staffs get fired at times and then coaches resurface uh, just to get jobs elsewhere, not necessarily, um, you know, following, uh, you know, going to places where they select. Uh, but they want to stay employed, obviously. And the the, the air raid coach uh, discussed how he spent a year with a pro-style offensive team at the college level and how different it was. The goal of the pro-style offense is to make it to third and manageable, whereas the goal of the air raid offense is to get as many yards and points as possible. So it's really a different end goal uh, between the two offensive systems. uh, And this has absolutely played a role in uh, the upward trend of scoring. And not not many teams have still embraced uh, the air raid, but enough have uh, to suit their quarterbacks and make it more likely that their quarterbacks do succeed, like Jared Goff, who struggled mightily as a rookie, Patrick Mahomes, who, you know, had a great college profile but did not play as a rookie and was considered to be, you know, kind of like a boom bust prospect. And that's why he went at number 12 or number 10 overall in the draft. But increasing the probability of those guys hitting, catering the offense to their strengths after they played in those systems uh, in college has definitely helped cause this scoring bonanza in the NFL. The other interesting thing about the spread attack at the college level is 10 years ago, the air raid offense was implemented by bad teams, teams that could not recruit the best prospects. The Northwestern Wildcats, they were one of the first to implement the spread attack. 
as a way to compete with teams that were recruiting much better players. But now what we're seeing is the top programs are also finally moving away from the pro style and implementing the spread attacks, and they're becoming even more unstoppable. And I recommend a podcast called Origins with James Andrew Miller. And in the last season of Origins, he chronicles the rise of the Alabama program. And you want to zero in specifically on his interview with Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin explains in detail how he convinced Nick Saban to scrap the pro-style offense and to open things up and to stop calling plays with the goal of getting to third and manageable and to start calling plays with the goal of scoring as quickly as possible. That was a titanic mindset shift for Nick Saban. And of course, Lane Kiffin takes credit for doing that. (laughs) That's what Lane Kiffin does. He takes credit for stuff like that. It was fascinating to hear, and it made perfect sense that the first colleges to implement it would be those with the lowest talent profiles, and then it would culminate when finally the Alabamas start to implement it and just become completely unstoppable. This is a bit of a retrospective looking back to some excellent shows and takes from 2018. What was your best take of the offseason, Evan? Yeah, and to be clear, I've gotten a million things wrong this year. I mean, I do every year. I get a million things wrong every season, every week. I mean, I write an article every week where... Rex Burkett. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Like I'm not reminded of that every day. Um, but I'm glad that I got James White on pretty much every team this year. And for Roto World readers, I'm glad that in my top 150s, I kept pushing him up the board really aggressively all summer and fall because, you know, I love Rex Burkett. I mean, I I just love him. And I think that anyone with a solid football acumen was high on Rex Burkett Burkett entering this year. He's hashtag good at football. Right. And he's in, you know, a top five offense. I mean, that's exactly what you want. Yeah. You know, he scored eight touchdowns in 10 games last year. He was in line to be the goal line back, but he suffered a tear in his knee in training camp. And Sony Michelle missed camp with a knee injury after coming out of Georgia with knee concerns. So both of those guys entered the season as major injury risks. And I'd stopped drafting them by early to middle August and taking James White in every league and, and bumping him up my rankings to the point where, I mean, anybody that was you know using my, my top 150 as like a foundation for uh, their own rankings was definitely getting James White because I had him as like a fifth to sixth round pick. By that time, and he, and he was still going in the double-digit rounds in a ton of leagues. And it, it has not even mattered if you play in PPR or non-PPR because James White is crushing it. Um, and, I mean, he's been a league winner to date. And now we have Sony Michelle likely to miss uh, multiple weeks due to his latest injury. And the, the backfield has been whittled down for now to James White and Kenyon Barner. Oh, Kenyon Barner. He's going to be a factor this year, isn't he? I'm starting to think that he might. He is. He has to be. Running back doesn't matter at the NFL level. It's a replaceable, disposable position at the NFL level. Not in fantasy football. It's the opposite in fantasy football. But in real football, Melvin Gordon is out, and it doesn't affect the line at all. So Ken John Barner is going to be getting carries in one of the NFL's most prolific offenses, and that's all we care about. Exactly. Put him on the end of your bench, at very least. He may become a fantasy starter at some point. Yeah, it's weird. The moment Darius Geis went down, Chris Thompson skyrocketed. Some were drafting him as early as the fourth round. 
And when it was announced that Rex Burkhead was playing through a torn knee, a torn up, that Rex Burkhead and Sony Michelle both had torn up knees, James White rose a couple rounds. He went from round 12 to round 10 at the earliest. Meanwhile, Chris Thompson's going in round five. That didn't make sense because if anything, it'll be James White operating in a similar role in a higher scoring offense than Chris Thompson. So if you liked to draft satellite backs, James White was the play. And you know what also is the play, Matt Kelly? I mean, because this is the third year in a row now where the winning strategy for drafting Patriots running backs is to take the cheapest one. In 2016, it was LeGarrette Blunt goes on to lead the NFL in rushing touchdowns. I mean, most of the offseason that you, you, you could get him in the 11th round. In 2017, it was Deion Lewis who wound up being a league winner. I mean, right there at the end of the season with Todd Gurley as a guy that you needed on your team to win down the stretch. And he was like a 13th to 15th round pick last offseason. And now this offseason, James White, the 9th to 10th round pick, is the league winner. So that's kind of an intriguing little small sample trend. But something to keep in mind, uh, because I know that people hate to draft Patriots running backs. I mean, I sort of get it. But you do want to have exposure, access to this offense because it scores so many points. And you want to have access in some manner, take a shot on getting a big asset in an offense like this. And we talked about this principle all offseason with the Patriots and the Green Bay Packers backfield. And in August, once it was announced that Aaron Jones would be suspended for the first two games, Aaron Jones became the least expensive running back on the Packers. And now he is the back to own because it's a three-way committee. And we know now it's certain that we know, everyone knows, Mike McCarthy knows, Aaron Rodgers knows. The number one talent in that backfield is Aaron Jones. And it's just a matter of time before he's unleashed. We just don't know when he will be unleashed. But he's the guy you need to stash. And you can move on from Jamal Williams. You can move on from Ty Montgomery because those guys are simply not going to produce. Even when given opportunity, the lion's share of the snaps in the early weeks, Jamal Williams... So we talked about the Patriots. They look great, but they can't stop anybody. The Rams, on the other hand, are scoring 30 points a game and they have a defense. So will it be the Patriots facing the Rams in the Super Bowl, or do you have another team in the AFC that you see as a dark horse to overcome the Patriots and represent the AFC in the Super Bowl? I mean, I think that right now you're looking at the Patriots and you're looking at the Chiefs. And the Patriots have the head-to-head tiebreaker, but the Chiefs have the better record as we speak today. And you see the great offenses on both sides and the bad defenses on both sides. But I think that one thing that people don't talk about enough with Kansas City is just how athletic they are. I mean, and this has been a a spark team uh, going back, like really emphasizing spark scores to uh, direct their decision making or at least to break ties. I mean, this is a team that like trades up for Jehu Chesson, you know, who isn't even necessarily a good prospect but he was like a, a total spark freak. And then you look at um, the the construct of their offense right now, Tyreek Hill, obvious freak show athlete, you know, the, the cheetah for God's sakes, Pat Mahomes, great athlete, you know, son of a two-decade baseball player, Travis Kelsey, unreal athlete for a tight end, Chris Conley, Spider-Man at the Combine, Demetrius friggin' Harris, your number two tight end, former basketball player 
you know, probably dominates in fantasy if Travis Kelsey ever ever goes down. Going to be a free agent next year. Stash him in Dynasty. Demetrius Harris, stash him in Dynasty. I mean, I've been stashing him. I end up cutting him and you know for a hot waiver pickup and then the hot waiver pickup doesn't work out and then I drop the hot waiver pickup and pick back up Demetrius Harris. I mean, all these guys like make Sammy Watkins look like a stiff. But just the amount of athleticism on this offense is truly special. Oh yeah, I just executed a trade in Dynasty where the two throw-ins I was getting in return, Chris Conley and Demetrius Harris. Why? What happens if Sammy Watkins or Tyreek Hill gets hurt? Think about it. You put Chris Conley in a starting role tethered to Patrick Mahomes? Find me a better stash wide receiver. Try it. Do it. It was Traquan Smith for a few weeks, and then he broke out. He's no longer a stash receiver. He's the real deal. Now the number two wide receiver tethered to Drew Brees. So you're welcome on Traquan Smith, and you want the next guy. The next guy is actually more athletic than Traquan Smith on an even more prolific offense. (laughs) It's Chris Conley. So I'm done talking about great teams. Let's talk about a bad team, the Browns. Revisiting the schematic atrocities, the best title in the history of Roto Underworld Radio episodes. How many games will Hugh Jackson coach for the rest of his lifetime? Well, I think that it should be like negative 12 because last Halloween on that fateful day when they decided to pull the ripcord on Sashi Brown instead of firing the real problem, Hugh Jackson, um, you know, that that was like the negative 12. Uh, but, you know, this is something that we discussed on, on the Schematic Atrocities podcast. It's, it's a pyramid-run organization, and John Dorsey, even as the Browns general manager, does not have the power to fire Hugh Jackson. I think that he would have fired him, you know, immediately when, when, when John Dorsey took over as the Browns GM, if he had that power, but he does not have that power. And, you know, being the Machiavellian coach that he is, as you you famously called him, uh, Hugh Jackson has somehow just been able to manipulate the Haslam family. And, you know, Jimmy Haslam, unvirtuous as he is, is unable to see through the unvirtuous uh, Hugh Jackson. And so it's just going to come up to to, uh, it's going to come down to uh, when Jimmy Haslam pulls that trigger. I will say, though, I think that they get blown out. This week in Pittsburgh, I think that the Steelers just clean their clocks. And after Hugh Jackson essentially threw Todd Haley under the bus, the latest guy that he's thrown under the bus. That's right. That is something that, that could that could catch the eye of Jimmy Haslam and put him in a, in a position. Because, you know, Jimmy Haslam used to be part owner of the Steelers. So this game should mean more to him than most games. And I think that if they go to Pittsburgh and, and get just their clocks cleaned, which I think that will happen, uh, I think that that may spur some action. So Jimmy Haslam is Theoden, king of the riders of Rohan, that is under the spell of the Machiavellian character, Hugh Jackson. And that was the beauty of the HBO Hard Knocks season this year, is you got to see exactly how the sausage is made in Cleveland. Hugh Jackson is a smooth talker. He really is. And you got to see how he casts his spells. It was terrifying. And finally, though, the spell has been broken on Nick Chubb, and he has been freed. How much better is Nick Chubb than Carlos Hyde? Uh, first of all, what is the deal with these trolls that uh, react negatively to athletic metrics? Do, do they think that athleticism does not matter in athletics? Oh, yeah. They compared Nick Chubb to Niall Davis. <laughs> right. And 
there is no comparison between Nick Chubb and Niall Davis. Niall Davis is comparable to Kristen Michael. These are size speed specimens who were never who could never command workhorse touches at the college level. You knew something was wrong in the wiring of Kristen Michael and Niall Davis based on their collegiate usage. The opposite is true with Nick Chubb, who was one of the most prolific freshman running backs in the history of college football, then tears his knee up, and then in his final season is the primary back preventing Sony Michelle from truly breaking out. Like we've seen what Sony Michelle could do at the professional level. He's really good. But guess what? Nick Chubb prevented even him from commanding any kind of significant opportunity share at Georgia because he's just that good. Right. And that's why on the player profiler site, you're not just using athleticism metrics. There are also production and usage share metrics on there. So it's not just athleticism, you know, and when we combine all the different metrics, the production, you know, the efficiency, the usage and the athleticism, then we increase our probability. And that's the entire goal of of the friggin' thing. So please, can people understand that? Um, As for Nick Chubb, and I mean, just how much better he is than than Carlos Hyde. Well, first of all, I think that it would be nice if, if the coaching staff put these guys in position to succeed a little bit better. Because Todd Haley has this just maddening tendency to run these early down grinders like Nick Chubb and Carlos Hyde into brick walls on first and 10 and second and 10. And, you know, he did this with Le'Veon Bell in Pittsburgh, too. And Ben Roethlisberger just hated him for it because on early downs, the defenses are equipped to stop exactly what Todd Haley was trying to do. They have their nose tackle on the field. You know, they have their strong safety up in the box. They have their strong side linebacker on the field without a nickel corner. And it's just an, an super inefficient suboptimal play call uh, to run against these kind of fronts uh, on first and second and 10. Um, But anyways, I think that what Nick Chubb brings to the table over Carlos Hyde is the ability to hit long runs. Yes. Carlos Hyde can be an adequate grinder, but he is not going to bang long runs like Jamal Lewis could. And I think that, you know, Nick Chubb has some Jamal Lewis. I love that comp to his game. I just want, I just want Todd Haley to use him more optimally. And and the the questions about his uh, ability to play in the passing game do remain. I mean, he has three targets this season. He has not caught one of them. And he had 13 catches over his final three seasons at Georgia. Um, So that is, you know, a a lingering concern. I think that he had uh, a decent season uh, receiving early in his college career. Yeah, he threatened 20 receptions as a freshman, but that was it. Right. So that remains the biggest question mark about Nick Chubb. But um, he, he just adds a lot more explosiveness to their ground game. Unfortunately, we project the Browns to be facing a lot of negative game script in the second half. And if you don't catch passes, we can't consider you an RB1. It's a great story. Nick Chubb scored last week. We love seeing running backs unleashed. But unless you're either a between the tackles grinder on a team like the Patriots in the red zone a lot, in positive game script a lot, or you're an all-purpose back and you're used in all phases, yes, you can make a case that those players are RB1s. You can't really make a case for Nick Chubb being an RB1 the rest of the way. He's an RB2, and that's also fine. What about Karrion Johnson? Is he the next rookie running back to be unleashed? Yeah, I think that we, you know, we have seen signs of that for sure in two games out of six so far. And I think that regardless of theoretic status going forward, I just don't see how Jim Bob Cooter in, in good faith can turn away from 
turn away from from carry on Johnson after what what he did last week. Twenty one touches, one hundred and seventy nine total yards on his seventy one yard run, uh, which by the way was the longest in seven years by a Lions running back. Next gen stats clocked carry uh, on Johnson at twenty one point two miles per hour, the NFL's third fastest run play speed all year. Um, and you know I, I think that. Uh, if you look at, if you just go back and look at what the Lions' offseason strategy was, uh, it was to prioritize the run under uh, their new defensive-minded coach Matt Patricia. Uh, the the GM Bob Quinn used the first-round pick on your boy Frank Ragnar, who's been a stud at left guard, although his penalties keep costing. Kenny Galladay had a touchdown wiped out by a Frank Ragnar penalty. But I don't watch the games. I don't watch the games. I would. How would I know that? I don't want. No, I, just take that back. I didn't say that. But Bob Quinn took Frank Ragnow, the stud left guard mauler, uh, in the, the first round and then traded up for Kerryon Johnson, a running back, in the second. Uh, you look at his snap share, 37%, 47%, 59%, all in ascending order uh, over the last three games. 10 touches, 14 touches, 21 touches. Uh, so in definitive ascent over the Lions' last three games. And the Lions' offensive line uh, is number three in the NFL in yards created before contact per rushing attempt. Uh, so an elite run-blocking offensive line. I, they have to commit to carry on going forward. We predicted this, that the most improved run-blocking unit in the NFL this season would be the Detroit Lions. And Karrion Johnson has scored double-digit fantasy points in PPR leagues in his last five games. So this is a quiet breakout because he hasn't reached that 20-point threshold yet. Even last week, 179 total yards, but only two receptions and no touchdowns. So he hasn't had the full-blown peacock feather breakout quite yet. But it's going to happen one of these games. What does Kerryon Johnson and Nick Chubb have in common? The burst. In the explosion drills of the combine, when you look at the broad jump and the vertical jump, mix them together into one equally weighted metric on player profiler. Nick Chubb, 129.5, 91st percentile. Karrion Johnson has even more burst. 131.0 burst score, 93rd percentile. And I love it when the workout metrics are translated onto the field. And you can literally see... Nick Chubb and Karrion Johnson breaking long runs using the burst they demonstrated in testing at the NFL scouting combine. It's a beautiful thing when you see that in action. Yeah, and going back to uh, the point about the athleticism, you know, no one is saying that a guy is going to be good because of solely athleticism. And there are plenty of guys throughout history that have been productive in college you know, that weren't, you know, that didn't mean that they were going to be good in the pros, but you want to see a culmination, you know, a combination right. of all those traits and those characteristics. We knew Monte Ball was overdrafted based on his college counting stats because he was a sub-athlete. He didn't reach thresholds of athleticism that would indicate this is a player in the league. He wasn't. And we knew that Jeff Janis was going to be a future All-Pro because he was productive and he had the athleticism. He just didn't have the opportunity. But but we we knew that right. you know we saw it in that in that playoff game against the Cardinals. What he could have been if the coaches would have been more open-minded and, and if Aaron Rodgers uh, would not have just hated him irrationally. That's right. Because he's a hick. That's right. Aaron Rodgers irrationally hated Jeff Janis, and then he ended up on a team run by Hugh Jackson. And you wonder why Jeff Janis isn't in the league. 
Exactly. Staying with the Browns, the receivers after Jarvis Landry are interesting. I think I'll say that. Who's better, Damian Ratley or Antonio Callaway? <sighs> the fact that this is even a question tells you all you need to know about Antonio fucking Callaway. I know. I mean, he just can't catch a cold. He, he did not play football last year, first of all. So the fact that he's being run out there as much as he has is almost kind of unfair to him. I mean, they're asking a lot of a dude who did not even play. I mean, you're, what, 21 years old, and during your age 20 season, you don't even play the sport, and now you're playing at the professional level? That's asking an awful lot of Antonio Callaway. He has hurt the team being out there. This should have been a redshirt year for Antonio Callaway. I agree. And I like Damian Ratley. Damian Ratley looks like Jerron Brown. And I've always liked Jerron Brown. Always thought Jerron Brown was underutilized because he has the athleticism and he was never able to produce. Going all the way back to his time in college, he was trapped behind DeAndre Hopkins and Sammy Watkins. Same is true for Damian Ratley. Trapped behind Josh Reynolds and Christian Kirk. So I'm excited to see Damian Ratley continue to command a significant snap share and produce. He didn't get the targets last week. He had targets the previous week. I'm going to be going right back to Damian Ratley in super deep leagues and taking and and if you if you're looking for, you know, the most inexpensive upside for the dollar in DFS, he's still the guy. Doug Martin has no upside. Whatever the opposite of upside is, that's Doug Martin. I mean, I hear Doug Martin is a hot pickup in fantasy football, and it's stupefying. Do you agree with me? When I think about Doug Martin, especially like in, in like the Black Raiders uniform, you know, I think about like a pretzel with like poop frosting on top of it. <laughs> uh, he's just he's just gross. I mean, he has not been good in years. I don't even like pretzels. That's particularly gross to me. He has not been a good rusher in years. He's never been able to pass protect, and he's never been good in the passing game as a receiver. No. So he's a liability out there. I think that the reason that John Gruden wanted to get Doug Martin on his team so bad was because after John Gruden got fired, um, he you know watched the Buccaneers a lot because he got fired by the Buccaneers. And they went out and drafted this running back, Doug Martin, in the first round. And he had this, you know, cool nickname. And he, you know, kind of looked like a Gruden grinder. And, you know, he had some, some good seasons early in his career. He had a great rookie year. And I think that he always felt that attachment to Doug Martin uh, being there and him not being able to experience that. You know, you go back and look at, like, all the guys that John Gruden has signed during his first year with the Raiders. He actually signed guys that he drafted with his final draft class as the Buccaneers head coach. So he's he's making these emotional... Sentimental pickups. Right, he's letting his sentiment and his emotion uh, you know, be the crux of his decision-making, and it's sad. And that's why the Raiders find themselves where they are today, and that's why this, this whole experiment is going to be an, an epic, epic fa- failure, and it's very, very easy to see. Hashtag sad. Doug Martin is the anti-Karrion Johnson. Karrion Johnson's checking all these boxes, and he has maximum upside, and he's ascending. Doug Martin is not in ascent. Doug Martin is not going anywhere. Look what he did last year. 2.9 yards per carry. That was number 70 of the NFL. Like, oh, yards per carry? That's an antiquated efficiency metric. No one uses yards per carry anymore. Well, yards per carry in context 
is very valuable. That's what we have at Player Profiler. We have all the context that you can wrap around the yards per carry. You can look at his breakaway run rate last year of 2.2% outside the top 45. His juke rate, evaded tackles per touch, 19.7. Anything under 20 is very low. It was outside the top 40. His yards created per carry, outside the top 40. And you mentioned he's not an adequate receiver. 50% catch rate for a running back? Think about how low that is. Think about how low a 50% catch rate for a running back is. There's no one between you and the quarterback. It's a free, easy catch 90% of the time for a running back. That's why running back catch rates on average are so much higher than wide receiver catch rates. Doug Martin, 50%. The back to own in Oakland is Jalen Richard. You agree? Yes, yes. And, you know, if you look at his workout metrics on, uh, on player profile or anywhere, they were poor. Apparently, his pro day was conducted in the rain. Mm, okay. At Southern Mississippi. I knew there was something weird uh, going on there, but... It, it, it's a weird thing with these Mississippi pro days. Ido Smith also apparently slipped during his agility drills at his pro day. So with Jalen Richard, you have a guy that is already second on the team in targets. Okay, Jared Cook leads the Raiders in targets. And then we are removing Amari Cooper and Marshawn Lynch from the equation, which combined frees up nine more targets. And we have a team that is progressively getting worse and proactively trying to tank and will be playing from behind in games. All of this really suits the skill set of Jalen Richard, uh, who has been an excellent receiver. You know, if you want to talk about a potential downside, because we should all we should not just always talk about the ceiling, we should also talk about you know, the floor and, you know, the median projection. The median projection is what we've gotten so far. You know, we just talked about uh, the potential ceiling for Jalen Richard is if DeAndre Washington gets involved in the offense. You know, that could start to steal some targets, steal some snaps from Jalen Richard. But I completely agree with you uh, that Jalen Richard uh, is the most valuable uh, fantasy back in Oakland going forward. And the problem with Jalen Richard is in his final year at Southern Mississippi, he was competing with Edo Smith. I think we would all agree Edo Smith is a better back. He's a better all-around talent. He's more explosive. He's more skilled in most areas. But just because you're not as talented as Edo Smith doesn't mean you're not good, right? So Jalen Richard would have been a hell of a lot more productive in his final season had it not been for the presence of Edo Smith. And if you're looking for the next James White, the next Chris Thompson satellite back in the NFL that is available on the waiver wire or is easily acquired in trade, even in Dynasty as a throw-in, it's absolutely Jalen Richard. On the other end of that spectrum, a player who's explosive but can't catch, Ronald Jones. Is that ever going to happen? Um, you know, because he's a running back and opportunity is what matters most at the running back position, I'm certainly not, and he has straight line speed, I am certainly right. not going to rule out the possibility. You know, and his competition is not stiff, but I was right there with you before the draft. I thought he was overrated as a prospect. Um, you know, he has never caught passes in college or in high school. He looked terrible in the passing game throughout the preseason, uh, and he hasn't done much in the, in the passing game so far this year. And this is a team with a really bad defense, and they need running backs that contribute in the passing game because they're going to be throwing the ball all year long. So 
I just thought he was a very weird fit. And the Bucks organization, the Bucks regime right now has has struggled. I mean, th- this is the same regime that traded up into the second round to draft Roberto Aguayo. This is the same uh, organization that hired Mike Smith to be their defensive coordinator. This is the same team that they used their first round pick on a run-stuffing defensive tackle, Vita Vea, and then they used their second round pick on high second round pick number 38 on a running back who can't catch passes. If this were the NBA, that's the equivalent of drafting a post-up center and a point guard that can't shoot. Exactly. They're really, really struggling, and they seem to not really... And, I mean, they, they get stuff right. It's kind of weird because sometimes they'll do a smart thing. Ali Marpet. Ali Marpet was the highest-drafted Division three player in, in the history of college football, and they signed him to a very savvy extension. It's a very schizophrenic, weird team. It is. They can't decide what to do with Jameis Winston. They don't. They haven't embraced an identity. It's an odd franchise, but fascinating to watch from a distance. Yeah, and they hired, you know, as their OC, Todd Monken, the air raid. You know, he has he has air raid background. He ran it at. We learned it from Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State, uh, and then he got a uh, parlayed that job into a head coaching job right. at Southern Miss, and. Uh, he ran the air raid there. He was actually uh, originally a pro-style coach, but he bought into the air raid, and he's brought that to Tampa Bay. Uh, so it's it's strange that they do some smart things and some things that are just brutally dumb. My favorite comp of the rookie running backs this year was Ronald Jones to Ronnie Hillman. <laughs> one's Ronald, one's Ronnie. Kind of like Ronnie. Ronnie's a good name. But you look at Ronnie Hillman's profile, what jumps out at you? The speed and burst, but also the relatively low target share. If you're going to be a featured weapon at San Diego State, you better have a high target share out of the backfield. And Ronnie Hillman didn't have that. Very similar player to Ronald Jones. Not a good signal for Ronald Jones in any way whatsoever. Back to the opposite end of the spectrum. Back to good players. The best player, Todd Gurley. Is he the next Ladinian Tomlinson? Just a cliche sports radio question. I mean, he's on pace to break Ladinian Tomlinson's all-time record for uh, all-purpose touchdowns by running back. He's on pace for 32 touchdowns this year, and Ladinian Tomlinson has the record with 31. So he's just a bigger, faster, better Ladinian Tomlinson. And they're used very similarly, you know. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't think it's a crazy comp. I mean, they're, they're obviously different dudes, and Ladanian Tomlinson is already in the Hall of Fame. And, and Ladanian Tomlinson is also in the Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. From a fantasy perspective, Todd Gurley is doing what Ladanian Tomlinson did for fantasy owners. And we knew that Todd Gurley had this special talent coming out of Georgia, and it drowned in the archaic... Schematic atrocities of Jeff Fisher. Schematic atrocities that were committed by Jeff Fisher and Co. That's right. Um, and, and now they have they have uh, bloomed uh, with you know uh, one of the best offensive lines in football uh, and, an, and an offensive uh, mi- mind who knows that getting the ball to the running back in the passing game is absolutely crucial uh, and really opens up your your entire offense. Just congratulations. Just want to give you a hand, all you fantasy gamers that were super savvy, super smart, clever, forward-looking, getting that first pick in your draft. (laughs) Drafting Todd Gurley, you did a great job. Enjoy that championship. You won the 1 out of 12 lottery. You got the first pick. You won your league. Give yourself a hand. Huge accomplishment. Congratulations. 
Only two busts this year in the first round. Unbelievable. That's rare, right? Only two first-round busts, Leonard Fournette and Le'Veon Bell. That's pretty unprecedented. So if you drafted a running back in the first round, you probably hit, and that's rare. But zero RB was still a viable strategy, especially if you didn't have the first overall pick. I mean, if you had the first overall pick and you were drafting not Todd Gurley, that wasn't smart. But later, you could have drafted Marlon Mack, even though he really didn't help you for the first six weeks. So the beauty of Marlon Mack is let someone else draft him, let someone else drop him, and then pick him up just before he comes back from the hamstring injury, and bada-bing, bada-boom, he wins you a week. Just one week is all I need. That's why I've been trading for James Conner. All I need is one week. Just give me one week. That makes the difference between a 4-3 and three team and a 5-2 and two team in fantasy football, and that's everything, right? Yes, and although the first round has been really strong this year in fantasy, if you look at the running back position through like the fifth or sixth round, and I did this recently, I looked at my final top 25 running backs, 18 of them were disappointments. I mean, it's, you know, all throughout the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds, those running backs were just littered with failures, you know, from Devontae Freeman on down to, you know, Rex Burkhead. And then even early season drafts, Jarek McKinnon went down. I mean, this is the case for going zero RB is that the running back position is fragile. Not only are they themselves fragile because their bodies are put in harm's way on a high percentage of plays, but the projections are fragile. The running back position is more difficult to project season to season. Production oscillates more wildly because running back is more interdependent. If you're trapped behind one of the worst offensive lines or an anemic offense or both like David Johnson, no matter how talented the running back is, he's not going to produce. So that's the case for zero RB, and it's a strong case, but we weren't advocating for zero RB this year, especially if you were drafting in the first half of the first round it was rb and then wide receiver times four and that's working out incredibly well that's actually with the benefit of hindsight and you guys had the foresight to promote that too um, but with the benefit of hindsight which isn't always helpful that was the optimal strategy this year you know it was start off with todd Gurley or melvin gordon ezekiel elliott or ezekiel elliott and then hammer receiver and then come back and start pounding you know, you know, maybe mixing a tight end or, you know, but but ideally, you know, hammer uh, running back on the way on the way back through and get like George Kittle in the 10th or 11th round. Oh, that would have been the best with hindsight. I didn't get as much Kittle, a lot of Jack Doyle. That was a failure. So not all players can be hits. But you know what I did do, which worked out so perfectly, almost like you scripted it was in a bunch of drafts. I ended up going Marshawn Lynch, Marlon Mack. And then Marshawn Lynch carries me through week six. Marshawn Lynch gets hurt, and I pivot to Marlon Mack. Boom, boom, boom! You can't lose. That's zero RB. That is like the perfect individual case study for zero RB, and in particular, getting great production out of your RB2 slot. You're welcome, America. So what do we do with James Conner at this point? Le'Veon Bell's going to come back at some point. What do you do if you have James Conner? You hold him. You hold him. Thank you. Because... Uh, I think that at worst, you're going to end up with an RB2 slash flex play. I know that, you know, the, the common narrative is that, you know, the Steelers only use one back. And that's true. That has been true 
throughout Le'Veon Bell's career, but James Conner has played so well that there's no way that they can justify, like, inside their locker room to pulling this dude who, like, is a hometown pit kid, uh, you know, who overcame cancer, who was beloved in the city, uh, who was beloved in that locker room. You can't just pull him off the field, you know, for Le'Veon Bell, who's been away from the team for half the season, won't even communicate with his teammates. And then it also makes sense from Le'Veon Bell's standpoint, because Le'Veon Bell's apparent reasoning for his holdout is that he wants to limit the mileage on himself, reduce his injury risk. So it makes the most sense to use an even committee, let them you know, rotate series or, or, or however they want to do it. Um, but I, I don't think that James Conner gets pulled off the field. And I, I talked to uh, someone who, like, who with extensive, extensive uh, you know, inner workings inside the NFL recently, and he, he's like, they are trying to trade him. They are trying to trade Le'Veon of Bell. Course. That's what they want to do. And that aligns with all the media reports because yeah. there have been multiple reports, you know, that, that they want to trade him. But that but that is factual that they are trying to trade him. Uh, that So that is on the table. And it's also on the table that he continues to sit. Um, or, you know, so I, I think that. Or that he comes back and pulls a hamstring. Or that he comes back and, and pulls a hamstring. Absolutely. There are so many positive events and outcomes for James Conner the rest of the way. You need to hold him and try to acquire him if possible. Yeah, absolutely. From from somebody that's you know making fear-based decisions you, and you can get him on the relative cheap. I agree. I, I, don't, I don't think that they can just pull him out of the backfield. That, that doesn't make sense for anyone, for their team, for James Conner or for Le'Veon Bell. So many of these NFL teams are faux meritocracies. But in the case of the Pittsburgh Steelers, the coaches cannot even fake being a meritocracy if they're going to pull James Conner off the field. They just can't do it. They could absolutely lose the locker room, and I don't see that happening, just like you said. So let's say that you don't have James Conner, you don't have Marlon Mack, but you do have Marshawn Lynch, and you don't care about picking up Doug Martin because you have playerprofiler.com. Give us an RB stash for the second half. Who's this year's Rex Burkhead? And you can't say Karrion Johnson because we all know Karrion Johnson is going to beast out in the second half. This is kind of gross, but I'm going to go with Spencer Ware. Um, And it's just, you know, the the possibility of a Kareem Hunt injury happening, which, you know, we have not seen so far, but that doesn't that's not necessarily predictive of, of what's to come. If anything, you know. He may be more likely to experience injury regression. Um, but, you know, having the possibility to uh, be a feature back in the NFL's highest scoring offense or the NF- the AFC's highest scoring offense in Spencer Ware. And I, th- I think he's looked good on his touches. He has not been getting many of them, uh, but he would certainly be trusted at the goal line. There, there's nobody behind him to really worry about in Kansas City. Uh, so if you were looking to, you know, just stash guys. Right. Yeah, stash guys. That, that have a chance to hit in the second half of the season and be league, league winners. And we see this this work every single year. Last year it was, it was Deion Lewis uh, right around the same time. Yeah, if you're looking to find 2016 LeGarrette Blunt, that could be Spencer Ware. Um, I think that Trenton Cannon and Eli- Elijah McGuire are a little bit interesting in PPR leagues. Um, you know, probably a deeper PPR league. Uh, but I mean, they, I think that those guys are, are guys worth rostering in dynasty. Um, you know, uh, Bilal Powell's out for the season with a neck injury. Isaiah Crowell has been dealing with this foot slash ankle injury for multiple weeks, barely able to practice. Um, and Trenton Cannon is a very, very explosive dude. Uh, he's kind of small, 
Um, but he is really, really explosive. I liked him a lot in the preseason. And then Elijah McGuire, I mean, their running backs coach, hyperbole for sure, but compared him to Ladanian Tomlinson during the offseason. They're, they're, they're really high on Elijah McGuire. Oh, for Dynasty, man, go out and get Elijah McGuire. I'm absolutely stashing Elijah McGuire in multiple Dynasty leagues, and I'm looking forward to activating him sooner rather than later because he has impressive size-adjusted athleticism. Look at that speed score, 70th percentile. And at a small school, what did he do that Ronnie Hillman did not? commanded a huge target share, 15.4% at Louisiana Lafayette, was a dominant runner. I think that he could be unlocked this year if Isaiah Crowell gets hurt, and I would like to see that backfield. I would love to see the quintessential real-life zero-RB backfield of Elijah McGuire and Trenton Cannon. Please, let's make that happen. Air Raid with Sam Darnold, Trenton Cannon, and Elijah McGuire. I'd love it. I love it, too. I love it, too. So you put out just an incredible volume of quality content. I mean, it is stunning. Every season, you stun me with just the sheer quantity of excellent content that you put out. And it seems like every year, you uncover a data point, especially for running backs. Do you have one this year, a go-to data point for running backs that has been revealing? I'll say this in advance. No way you're going to say snap share, which is the ultimate red herring data point on every skill position player. Of course not. I mean, snap share is a... Oh, snap shares. Get out of here with your snap shares. Using snap share to justify playing Josh Reynolds in cash last week. Fuck out of here. Snap share is a metric that I want to know. I want to know it, but... I don't want to lean on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's not predictive. And if anything, it's a way to get an advantage on the competition. (laughs) Show your league mate the snap share during trade negotiations. Don't play players based on snap share. Perfect example of this is Duke Johnson, because he's been out there for over half the snaps over over the last three games. But guess what? They, They don't call plays for Duke Johnson. They're not trying to get Duke Johnson the ball. It's the Roy Hallou corollary. There was a time in Washington where Roy Hallou was commanding a higher snap share than Alfred Morris and getting no carries. <laughs> All the touches were going to Alfred Morris, regardless of the snap share. Roy Hallou was out there pass blocking and running empty calorie flare routes. Yeah, Chris Hogan has fallen victim to this as well. Yes, he's the wide receiver, Roy Hulu. You nailed it. They have not scaled back Chris Hogan's playing time at all this year. But his targets and his air yards are virtually non-existent. Um, he started to pick it up a little bit recently. Uh, but, I mean, he's like, uh, you know, he's the number five option in their passing game right now. Um, but for, for the running back position specifically, I think it's it's multiple metrics. It's uh, broken tackles and elusiveness as a runner combined with ability to play in the passing game we knew that melvin gordon could play in the passing game okay we knew that already um it was somewhat in doubt whether or not he could become an elusive tackle breaker but he has and that has been aided by uh their gm tom telesco's aggressive addressing of the chargers offensive line you know piecing this thing together with russell okung at left tackle going out and signing Mike Pouncey after the Dolphins cut him. You know, last year using the second round pick 
on Forest Land. Uh, they're they're uh, left guard entering his second season. One of my favorite names in the league also. And Anthony Lynn, and you know, some coach speak can be deceptive, no question. But it's another thing, it's sort of like Snapshare that I want to know. I don't necessarily want to base my decision making off of it, but I want to know what the coaches are saying. And Anthony Lynn came out and said during the offseason, we are going to use Melvin Gordon in the passing game more this year. And they have, especially on early downs. It's like the opposite of what Todd Haley is doing. Uh, They throw the ball to Melvin Gordon on early downs, and that has been highly, highly efficient. They have one of the most efficient offenses in the league. Okay, so you have seven defenders staring at you across the line of scrimmage. You can either hand the ball off and ask your running back, hey, go run around and through those seven guys. Or you could say, hey, run over there, flare out. I'll throw you the ball, and the ball travels faster than the defenders can. And then from that point, you turn up field, you see no defenders in front of you, and you can run straight ahead and then start to make moves and gain 12 yards. But if we had given you the ball behind the line of scrimmage, you would have gained two yards. I'm going to go with the flare to the running back. For 400, Alex. Thanks. Uh, Football, 200. Your choice. Do or don't name this play in which the quarterback runs the ball and can choose to pitch it to another back. It's an option play. Ryan? (laughs) Uh, Football, 400. I can tell you guys are big football fans. (laughs) Tom Landry perfected the shotgun formation with this team. Dallas Cowboys. Uh, do you think we should go to commercial? <laughs> Ryan? Take it on to 600. Okay, by signaling for one of these, a returner can reel in a kick without fear of getting tackled. Fair catch. Two clues left, Ryan. 800. These penalties are simultaneous violations by the offense and defense that cancel each other out. And they are called offsetting penalties. Let's look at the $1,000 clue just for the fun of it. (laughs) Jimmy? As Minneapolis' U.S. Bank Stadium prepares to host Super Bowl 52, I'm looking at the Ring of Honor with names from this defensive line that took the Vikings to four Super Bowls. If you guys (laughs) ring in and get this one, I will die. (laughs) Who are the purple people eaters. We're going to take a break. I have to talk to them. Yeah. And all of these running backs that we consider to be elite running backs at their position are elusive and catch passes. And it's Saquon Barkley, you know, Boom. and it's now Melvin Gordon. Boom. And it's Todd Gurley. Boom. And it was Ladanian Tomlinson. And it was Priest Holmes. And it's Kareem Hunt. And Marlon Mack. And soon to be Elijah McGuire! Soon to be Elijah McGuire. Now, do defenses matter? Defenses absolutely matter. But from a fantasy standpoint, it is likely that we adjust too much for them. Because the foundation of how we evaluate players as probable fantasy producers, the foundation of how we do that should be our volume projection. That's right. That's right. The opposing defenses have been historically overweighted by fantasy analysts in their rankings and projections. But defenses do matter. 
you don't want your running back facing the Baltimore Ravens. You'd rather that not happen. We now know that the Baltimore Ravens are one of the best defenses in the league. Is there a defense that is still flying under the radar that fantasy gamers are not aware of is one of the best in the league? Is there a booby trap defense out there that we need to be wary of? Yeah, the Dallas Cowboys. No way. I didn't know that. An elite pass rush, elite run defense. Byron Jones has emerged as, I mean, he's been pro football focus as number one cornerback since like the, the season began. Oh yeah. Byron Jones has been a top cornerback on the player profiler cornerback rankings all season. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. He has one of the best coverage ratings in the league. Coverage rating looks at air yards per target allowed, pass breakups, and importantly, target rate. So if quarterbacks are not throwing in your direction, and when they do, you're not allowing air yards and you're not allowing receptions, well, you're doing a great job, right? And that's Byron Jones. And up front, the Cowboys keep getting infusions of talent because David Irving comes off suspension. You know, he's only played, what, two games for them. And he's one of the uh, biggest difference makers at uh, defensive tackle as a pass rusher. And Randy Gregory uh, recently underwent a knee scope. He will be back in a couple of weeks. Sean Lee missed some time. He came back last week. Chidobe Awuze is underrated. This is terrifying. All right. We tend to sink into it talking about running backs. We could talk about running backs all day. When Evan Silva comes on the Roto Underworld program, you know it'll be running back focused. So we have to go rapid fire talking about the other positions. Start with tight end. Change it up. Is David Njoku a top five tight end the rest of the way? Yes. Is Vance McDonald a top 10 tight end the rest of the way? Right on that fringe. Definitely top 12. Very arguably top 10. I mean, this the Steelers defense is not getting any better. They're going to have to score points all year long. He is the number four option in the passing game. If not number three. I, I think he's the clear four behind Antonio Brown, Juju, and, and whatever running back they play. Um, but he, he's going to have big games. I mean, Big Ben loves this dude, uh, and you know he's going to be a little bit more up and down because he's, he's low on the target totem pole, so he's going to have some inconsistencies, uh, and we've seen that, but he's also going to have some big games. You know, Number one in the NFL right now among tight ends in yards after catch is George Kittle, and number two is Travis Kelsey, and number three is Vance McDonald, Woo-hoo! who has 20 fewer targets than the guys ahead of him. I know we don't like to look at Snapshare, but if there is a position where I like to look at Snapshare, it's actually tight end because that to me indicates usage. I want to make sure that my tight end is on the field in all different game situations. When they decide to call a bootleg rollout on the two-yard line, I want to know my tight end is in the game and he's the guy cutting across the back of the end zone to catch that touchdown. And that's Vance McDonald, the Snapshare, 45 51, 65, 65, 72 in week six. And look at the routes run consistently around that 25 routes run mark. And look at the targets, five, 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 two, eight. So he's averaging more targets per game than James Conner. He's actually the number three option on that target totem pole. You're wrong, Evan. Vance McDonald is not just the best GPP play among fantasy tight ends. I think he's also a cash game play. Now, in seasonal leagues, a lot of people have been blown up by the tight end. I mentioned 
those of us that drafted Jack Doyle. I'm sorry. But we're surviving. I'm surviving in a bunch of leagues with Austin Hooper. Surviving and advancing, surviving and advancing, surviving and advancing. Austin Hooper's on bye this week. Give me a streamer that could potentially become an every week starter in the second half. I mean, I think that the easy answer is CJ Uzoma, but he should be owned in all leagues already because he is, at very worst, a top 15 option on a team whose defense has disappointed, on a team that has lost Tyler Eifert and John Ross again, that has lost Giovanni Bernard, and that just has a lot of opportunity uh, in the passing game behind A.J. Green, Tyler Boyd, and Joe Mixon. Um, And he is on the field for every snap. He runs a ton of routes. Thank you very much. His air yards are also surprisingly high. Um, So C.J. Uzoma. But if we want to dig a little bit deeper, I think that the, the name is Chris Herndon who in week six, uh, who, by the way, played at Miami, uh, tight end U, or at least it used to be known as that with Kellen Winslow and Jeremy Shockley. It still is. David Njoku, Chris Herndon. Yes. David Njoku makes me happy. Uh, Chris Herndon, uh, though, in week six, he uh, ran seven routes, caught a touchdown. Uh, Last week went up to 13 routes. I mean, we're, we're inching here. You know, he's still running fewer routes than friggin' Jordan Leggett. Um, but he had 13 routes last week, went four for 42 with a touchdown, and he had a touchdown overturned on replay, and then Sam Darnold uh, snuck it in. He should have had two touchdowns? He should have had two touchdowns. And so the arrow is pointing up on his, um, on his, on his route running, his, his total routes run. But he, you know, if you were to look at his snap share, uh, it's not strong right now. I mean, he's playing in like a four-man rotation with Eric Tomlinson as the blocking tight end, with uh, Neil Sterling, the former Monmouth receiver, uh, and with Jordan Leggett. They need to get Jordan Leggett out of there and Chris Herndon running all those routes. If we could get 28 routes a game from Chris Herndon, I think that he could flirt with being a tight end one, especially on a team that has lost Quincy Anunu, has lost Terrell Pryor, and is desperate. For playmakers, man. If you're already playing Tomlinson, you don't need Leggett out there. I get that you want a blocking tight end in there, coaches from the 1960s. I get it. But you don't need two. Come on. Exactly. All right. We're sinking into it on tight ends. We can't do that. We're going to pull this out. We're gaining altitude again. Will Cam Newton be the number one quarterback in the second half? Look at the schedule, Evan. Look at the schedule. (laughs) All right. I mean. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely things that I like about Cam Newton. You know, the first one is that they are running him a lot. I mean, Norv Turner, I think it was fair to have some concern about Norv Turner uh, maybe not optimizing the usage of Cam Newton. But the best way to use Cam Newton is not to limit his running. It's to use him aggressively as a runner. That's really one of his best assets, if not his best asset. And Norv Turner has fully embraced that, and I love that. And then you get back Greg Olson, who, knock on wood, uh, has come back relatively successfully from this foot injury. I know he did not have a big game in week seven. Uh, he did score the game-winning touchdown, and he was out there, uh, but he had a tough matchup. The, the Eagles are always really, really good against tight ends, have very strong safety play and a lot of athleticism at linebacker. Um, and then Devin Funches has made the fourth-year leap, man. I mean, you know, this is Devin Funches's contract year, and he's out there looking like Alshon Jeffrey in his prime. Uh, so I, I like the receiver core and there and, you know, obviously Christian McCaffrey and there is still room for growth with DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel. Both guys have made flashed. You know, they have flashed 
I would like to see them eliminate uh, Jarius Wright from the offense and, and work in. Well, that's the thing. DJ Moore is the Chris Herndon of wide receivers. Get Jarius Wright out of there and play DJ Moore those Jarius Wright snaps. What am I missing? They have a lot of explosiveness uh, in their like complementary uh, pass catcher core with Christian McCaffrey, DJ Moore, uh, and Curtis Samuel. And I, and I think that as the season progresses, we will continue to see more from them. So uh, there is a lot to like about Cam Newton. Cam Newton has never had a supporting cast this good in his career. That's true. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think that he will be right there with Patrick Mahomes and, and Aaron Rodgers. Mitchell Trubisky, he's also running at will. He's officially undroppable, right? Top five fantasy quarterback in three straight games. Right. I mean, this is when a streamer becomes an every week starter. It, Mitchell Trubisky embodies that. His bye is already out of the way. Uh, he is second among all quarterbacks in rushing yards, and he only has room for improvement as a passer. I mean, it is still pretty ugly uh, watching him. Oh, he's number one in the league in interceptable passes, and he's number one in the league in danger plays. That's why playing the Jets is not a bad move this week. He loves throwing into crowds. Yes. So dangerous, this guy. And so he's got a, a lot, you know, a long way to go. One thing that we knew about him entering the season is that he was going to be surrounded by a pretty intriguing cast of you know pretty intriguing pass catcher cast yeah uh, and we have seen trey burton pop up for big games and we have seen Tarek cohen really come on recently as they weed out jordan howard i mean they are they're actively weeding out jordan howard jordan howard is like a part-time role player at this point and we have not seen the best of Allen robinson yet and you know taylor gabriel has flashed and we have not seen the best of anthony miller yet who by the way anthony miller led the team in air yards last week uh-oh! It's exciting. As a Mitchell Trubisky owner in many leagues, very excited. I don't have any Rosen or Darnold, though. If you were starting an NFL franchise today, knowing what you know, go Josh Rosen, go Sam Darnold. Who you got? Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold has shown more. Um, he's had a little bit more around him. He does not have very much around him, though. I mean, the Jets' offensive line is bottom half of the league to be kind. Uh, they are trotting out Jermaine Curse and Sharon Peak and Andre Roberts. At wide receiver right now, we are, you know, struggling to get them to even play Chris Herndon, a fifth round rookie tight end. Uh, I mean, he's got very, very little around him, but he is he's had some great games against the Colts, who I think actually have a, an underrated defense. They're top five in the NFL in sacks. He lit up the Broncos. Um, he I thought he played well in the week two game against the Dolphins. Uh, and in week one, you know, he did everything right against a Lions defense that has proved to be pretty good so far against the pass. He has had some bad games against really good defenses in bad spots uh, on a short week at Cleveland, um, you know, in that Thursday night game at Jacksonville and uh, at uh, against the Vikings last week where Sharon Peak just lets a ball bounce off his hands and into the, the arms of a defender. Uh, and then Andre Roberts... <laughs> Andre Roberts. Andre Roberts, just, just leave it there. Just the name Andre Roberts. Just, it's all you need to say, man. He's out there with Andre Roberts. 
Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, he has, he has had bad games in spots where we didn't expect him to have good games. And then he has beat up on uh, opponents where we did expect him uh, to, to play well. So that's that's what I'm looking for with Josh Rosen. I mean, he, he's impossible to evaluate. That's right. It's like, Jer- it's like Jared Goff under Jeff Fisher. He's impossible to evaluate. I, I pray that that coaching staff is one and done in Arizona. They they really just need to clear out everyone from the GM on down. I mean, the GM like w- was suspended during training camp for getting arrested off the field. Oh, Steve Keem. Oh, yeah. Get out of here. Get out of here, Steve Keem. Get out of here. You know, putting together the team, uh, the, the we knew from the, the get-go that this coaching staff was not going to work because the first thing that they came out and said that they were going to do was play ground and pound football. The second thing that they said they were going to do was install a 4-3 defense when they had the personnel for a 3-4, just because that is what you know the coach has always done, and use Patrick Peterson as a zone corner. Okay, Patrick Peterson was put on this planet to play man-to-man coverage against number one receivers. That's what he is here for, and you are going to turn. You're going to try to turn him into like a, a, a all left corner Josh Norman. You know he's so much better than Josh Norman, man. Like it's just it's unfair to the player, and that's why Patrick Peterson wants out. And then you got like I don't think that that Mike McCoy even watched David Johnson's college tape because if you watch David Johnson's college tape, or if you watch his tape under Bruce Arians you would know that his strength is not interior running. That's not what he's at. He's best at. You want to get him on the edges. You want to get him out against linebackers, and he will wreck. And they keep slamming him into the back of their guards and their center. They lost their starting center in training camp. The week seven Thursday night game, they were without both of their starting guards. Okay, So you have lost your starting center. And you, you have neither of your starting guards. Why should personnel get in the way of suboptimal play calling? <laughs> the first play from scrimmage is a run into the back of the freaking guard. Okay? You deserve, you deserve oh. to get picked six dunked on on the very next play. And that's exactly what happened. I loved seeing, even as someone, I streamed the Cardinals defense in that game, embarrassingly enough. But I, I was I was happy to see them just get dump truck steamrolled in that game based on the first play from scrimmage. Just an embarrassment. But yeah, you can't really evaluate Josh Rosen, but Sam Darnold has shown us that he's going to be a player in this league. He's only 21. He's only 21. Do you know where Carson Wentz was at age 21? He was at the midway point of his North Dakota State career. You realize that? Sam Darnold's already in the pros learning lessons that will help him as his career moves forward from age 22 onward. I'm trying to get as much Sam Darnold and Dynasty as I possibly can. Now that Justin Abair is staying in school, passing on Sam Darnold is looking more and more catastrophic for the Giants. I mean, oh my God. Dave Gettleman, what are you doing? Where to begin? Dave Gettleman has gotten everything wrong. This is how you get everything wrong, okay? You trade draft picks for Alec Ogletree, who stinks. You sign Nate Solder, who the Patriots let walk. Who has a degenerative spinal condition. And he stinks, okay? You sign the Jaguars' worst offensive lineman, who they let walk. They're smarter than you. He stinks. He's already benched, 
Okay, you pass on Sam Darnold, who I mean, Daniel Jeremiah had rated as his number one prospect at quarterback over the last three draft classes ahead of Deshaun Watson, ahead of Carson Wentz, ahead of Jared Goff. You pass on this guy, Daniel Jeremiah, smarter than you. You pass on him for a running back. This is how you get everything wrong. You you punt your third receiver position in 2018. Okay, in, in 2018 you punt your third receiver position. You enter the season with Cody Latimer. Now he was a washout in Denver. So when Cody Latimer gets hurt, and your your uh, your your coach, by the way, Pat Shermer, loves to run eleven personnel. Okay, so you are playing with ten men <laughs> on offense. When Cody Latimer gets hurt, your next guy is Russell Shepard. Okay, and then he gets hurt. Your next guy after that is someone named Jawill Davis, who I have never heard of. I've never heard of Jawill Davis. And he, in their week six game, is out here running like 35 pass routes. So you, you have put your coach in a position where he, he has to play with 10 men on offense. And that's not, you know, and that's giving you credit like Patrick Omame and, and Nate Solder and, you know, whoever they're running out at right tackle, Chad Wheeler these days. You're counting Eli Manning as one full quarterback? Right. We are counting those guys as actual <laughs> contributors on the field. Okay. But really where your problem began is at your inability to evaluate yourself because you can't evaluate your own players on your roster. You're so blind that you convince yourself that Eli Manning can still play. Okay. And you know, your your GM used to be the Panthers GM. He got fired. This is his second straight brick on a left tackle because he put Matt Khalil in Carolina, who everyone knew was bad and gave him a monster contract. Okay, pretty much same deal as Nate Soldier. Terrible injury history, you know, even worse than Nate Soldier as a a player. Uh, And the Panthers today have actually experienced addition by subtraction because Matt Khalil has been out. Their offensive line has gotten better. They actually have a good offensive line today because they didn't have to play Matt Khalil because he got hurt again. Also, the second straight year that you used a top 10 pick at the running back position. I mean, what are you doing, man? You, You are getting everything wrong. It's really embarrassing, and you know I, I don't know how they can enter a second year with this front office. You can't do it. Don't do it. Walk away from Dave Gettleman. How long is Dave Gettleman going to hold on there? It's crazy how long these failed general managers hold on to jobs. It all comes back to the cronyism because you know Dave Gettleman came up at, you know in the, the Giants organization, and you know he's friends with the Mara family. And, you know, Ernie Accorsi, uh, you know, the, the old Giants executive, he says, oh, you know, hire Dave Gettleman. He's my friend. Ernie Accorsi, the same guy who put John Fox. He, he's my friend. Same guy who put John Fox in Chicago. It, it all comes back to the cronyism. Um, and as you mentioned, meritocracy is, is few and far between. And we love the meritocracy when we see it because that's pure and that's virtuous. And the uh, the nepotism and the cronyism, which is so, so rampant. And look, it's, it's rampant in all businesses, you know, no question. But it's it's disgusting in this sport because we see players wasting their careers, you know, on just because just so guys can hire their friends and hire their family. Beyond Cody Latimer, here are the other wide receivers that Dave Gettleman brought into the facility in hopes of producing Benny Fowler. Russell Shepard, as you mentioned, Jawill Davis, Quadre Henderson, Alonzo Russell, and Khalif Raymond. I don't know who these players are, Evan. What are they doing? It's crazy 
how bad Dave Gettleman is. And we knew this. Gettleman got a Gettleman is something we were saying when he was in Carolina. And the fact that he got hired by another team after failing in Carolina, it's mind-melting. That's what it is. You can't think about it too long because your brain will melt. Okay, let's get back to rapid fire. The game is overrated. Who's the most overrated quarterback in the NFL? Isn't the easy answer Derek Carr? Well, he would have been last year, but most football fans have soured on Derek Carr at this point, especially Raiders fans. Ooh, are you sure about that? I don't know. That's not what my Twitter mentions tell me. Is that right? I don't know. Your Twitter mentions are at another level. I can't imagine trying to navigate your Twitter mentions. Oh, my. So Derek Carr, most overrated quarterback. Who's the most overrated running back? Is Leonard Fournette too easy here? No, that's the correct answer. Okay. The team has already acknowledged this by trading for Carlos Hyde. They drafted him number four overall. You know, he had injury concerns coming out of LSU, right? I mean, everybody remembers that, right? Oh, the foot problems. Right. Followed him throughout his career at LSU. Yeah, the foot problems, and they reoccurred during his rookie season. Yeah. More lower body injuries. Big surprise. Right. So, and I mean, there's no question that, you know, sometimes like foot injuries can contribute to, uh, you know, compensation injuries elsewhere uh, throughout your legs. And and I mean, you're a freaking running back. You you need your feet and your legs in order to uh, operate. So that, that was a terrible draft pick. They channeled Dave Gettleman with that draft pick, taking Leonard Fournette over either Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes, whoever you want there, pick one. That set the franchise back five years. It did, and you know they looked really good in their first season under Tom Coughlin, who, by the way, was the coach on the staff when Dave Gettleman was in the Giants for an office. Shocking, by the way. Sh- just shocking. And they looked really good in their first season. You know they had a they had one of the easiest schedules in the NFL. Uh, they were able to, you know, kind of uh, get away with uh, some deficiencies, and you know they just they maximize everything went right for them last year you know they had one of the uh, the lowest injury rates in the nfl um and you know their div- i mean the andrew luck didn't even play inside their division and you know they were coaching against you know mike malarkey and and terry robisky and you know bill o'brien and i mean you know everything jj watt went out i mean everything went right for the jaguars last year yeah pinning their ears back on defense against tom savage and jacoby Brissett. right and uh, so regression around them has kind of hit like positive regression toward the mean, and they have started to experience some uh, of the negative uh, regression away from the mean. Uh, so this is, yeah, and that's that's why they're now what like a three and four team heading to London to play Philadelphia. Yeah, frauds. Jacksonville fraud. Yeah. Who's the most overrated wide receiver in the league? You know, I still have hope for Amari Cooper. Okay, but I think that. When you see a team trade a first-round pick for a player with one year left on his contract that has led the NFL in drop passes, and I, I look, I know that drops are overrated, but when they are a, a continual problem, and he had that problem at Alabama, it's likely not going to go away, okay? Um, and when he has just not gotten better, I mean, Amari Cooper has not gotten better. He perfectly exemplifies plateauing at a position. And, and again, I maintain hope for him. He's young. He's younger than Cooper Cup, you know, uh, and he is he has been getting separation on his targets this year, uh, but he can't win against press man coverage. And so whenever you stick a good corner on him, like Casey Hayward just eliminates him every time that they play the Chargers. Yeah. Remember Talib? Talib erased Amari Cooper for years. Absolutely. 
So, and the Cowboys are not going to use him optimally because the best way to use him is to really use him as like a flanker, like a, a slot flanker. He's a flanker that's been posted up in X his entire career. Exactly. The Oakland Raiders for years had two exceptional flankers on their hands in Michael Crabtree and Amari Cooper, and they had to play Amari Cooper out of position, and John Gruden didn't recognize that. Right, and you see a guy like DeAndre Hopkins, he can win technically against the best corners in the league. And, and Amari Cooper it has nothing like that uh, in, in his toolbox, or at least he, does, he has not shown that uh, yet. And I think the best way to use him is really as an inside-outside player, 50% slot, you know, 50% uh, as the, the Z receiver. But Jason Garrett already came out and said that they're not going to use Amari Cooper like that. They, he called him an elite number one outside receiver. No! And now he is going to one of the run-heaviest offenses in the league uh, with Dak Prescott, who another guy who that has not gotten better. And all the problems are not on him. I mean, this year the Cowboys have had one of the uh, – they're, they're rated uh, top five or uh, bottom five in pass protection metrics. Uh, so, you know, Tyron Smith has been – like he's on the downward slope due to injuries – uh, their left guard that they use a second-round pick on, Connor Williams, has been a dud so far, unsurprising ways. 294 pounds, they're trying to play him at left guard in the NFL. They lost their center, Travis Frederick, and they're playing a career backup, Joe Looney, uh, uh, inside. Uh, at right guard, Zach Martin just suffered a, an MCL sprain. Uh, and then at right tackle, Lyle Collins has been really, really up and down. So they're past, they have run blocked well, but their pass protection has been a major issue uh, and so Dak Prescott has not t- taken steps forward and they run the ball at a really really high rate and they're going to stick with Cole Beasley in the slot so and, and do you really trust this coaching staff to make any kind of adjustments no. to be able to uh, account for the strengths and weaknesses of the players on their team no because they have never shown the ability to do that so this I think it's gonna it's just such a likely failure in Dallas and you see a, a team that is clearly desperate giving up a first round pick for a player that next year is owed fourteen million dollars. <laughs> Mark Cooper is owed, owed thirteen point nine million dollars next year. Do you, you think that you think the Cowboys who have the worst the worst cap management of, of our generation of, of our lifetimes, you think that they are going to be able to um, you know work I mean they're gonna make it work just so they don't look like idiots. You know, they're gonna sign him to an extension and, and all that and continue to kick the can down the road but brutal this right here is is the most overrated receiver in the nfl unfortunately and i i still love amari cooper but this is not a good place for him to go you know where amari cooper thrives and was successful at alabama double moves he's great at double moves but it's the stretch flankers that are typically running these double moves think about taylor gabriel I would love to play Amari Cooper in a Taylor Gabriel role. Imagine a pumped-up Taylor Gabriel. That would be exciting. That would be a playmaker. That would be a boom-bust guy every week. And that's fine. That's fine. Knowing what you have and playing him as such, you can maximize his skill set. You don't waste a lot of targets trying to feed a player that doesn't have the requisite footwork and hands to win one-on-one against press coverage. It's fine. Let him get a run off the line of scrimmage and let him run double moves and make some big plays without being heavily targeted. That's the way to go with Amari Cooper. I can't believe that's where we are with Amari Cooper. I thought more highly of Amari Cooper coming out, but I'm also a realist. 
And now that we know what he is, you should be able to play him as such. But this is why the Patriots are always in the playoffs and threatening to win the Super Bowl. Yes, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are geniuses, but also it's that there are so many teams around them that are incompetent. So they are buoyed by both their own competence and the incompetence of others. I will remind you, sir, that we are still in rapid fire mode. Keenan Allen, is he a bust? He's not a bust. You can go through and look at the game script and the schedule that the Chargers have played, and they're five and two, and all, and their five wins have come against the worst offenses in the league. You know, the Bills, the Titans. Keenan Allen has been betrayed by game script. Keep pushing the button on Keenan Allen. Send him out there. Play him every week. I think he's going to have a second half similar to last year. He did this last year. Reeves has talked about this. Uh, Keenan Allen had a really slow first half, disappointed everyone, was a league winner down the stretch. I think he looks great out there, uh, and they're going to be in a lot more competitive games in the second half of the seasons. They've just played a bunch of really, really weak teams that have not put pressure on them offensively. That's right. You know who else Lord Reeves called? Mitchell Trubisky the Biscuit. He came on the Roto Underworld Radio program and talked not only about Mitchell Trubisky's ability to become a gunslinger in the league, also a mobile gunslinger, the NFL's next Konami code quarterback, Rich Rebar. He knows things. Did you know about Tyler Boyd? Did you see this coming? No. Okay, Adam Thielen. Adam Thielen is on pace for 203 targets. Can he break Rob Moore's target record of 208? 28% chance. 28% chance. Love it. Love the precision. It's a lot. 208 targets is a lot. He has to get to 209 targets to break Rob Moore's record. The two single-season all-time target leaders both have the last name Moore. It's Herman Moore and Rob Moore. Fun facts on the Roto Underworld radio program. Loved Herman Moore. That, that's right when I started collecting football cards. I loved Herman Moore. He was like a big, tall... He played across from Brett Perryman, Brashad's old, uh, Brashad's dad. He was also a target monster. Will Jordy Nelson be a target monster in Oakland? He should be. What about Martavis Bryant? Martavis Bryant, right? Martavis Bryant, he's worth picking up in fantasy, right? It's going to be Martavis Bryant at X. It's going to be Jordy Nelson at Z. And it's going to be Seth Roberts at slot receiver and Jared Cook at tight end. I don't think they got even really worse in their receiver core. I don't think that they downgraded. Well, no, I think that Martavis Bryant is a better outside receiver than Amari Cooper because he's bigger and just as explosive stretching the field, and he's not going to command the same target share. You don't feel obliged to feed Martavis Bryant. You can let him just create space for Nelson and Cook. I think the big winner might be Jared Cook. Jared Cook and Jordan Nelson and Jalen Richard. Oh, Bring it back with Jalen Richard. If Demarius Thomas is traded, how good can Cortland Sutton be? Really good. Really good. Uh, the problem here is that the Broncos were recently forced to release their future franchise quarterback because um, he walked into somebody's house after a Halloween party. That's right. He got hammered at a Halloween party and wandered into someone's house and was sitting on the couch when police arrived charged with criminal trespass and subsequently released by the team. But these are the demons we knew about with Chad Kelly. No one's allowed to be surprised when Chad Kelly gets arrested. Just like you're not allowed to be surprised when Antonio Callaway fails a drug test. Get out of here. Traquan Smith, what's his ceiling this season? He's going to be in the Ted Ginn role. So I think that the most reasonable 
projection is basically what we got from Ted Ginn, which is three to six targets every week, you know, a relatively high snap share, a lot of routes, but just low volume and we, like a lot of splash plays. So every week, I think that we're going to be talking about him as, hey, what about Traquan Smith in a GPP? Right. Traquan Smith is the new Tyrell Williams. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a, a very good comparison. Um, although he plays on a team with a worse defense and that is likelier to be in shootouts, plays indoors. So those are all factors working in the favor of uh, Traquan Smith. But he, he's going to be you know, a perimeter receiver. They're not necessarily going to manufacture uh, targets and, and touches for him. Uh, and he's going to be running a lot of deep routes, I think. Did you know Sterling Shepard has three 20-point games this year? Talk about volatility week to week. No wide receiver has been as volatile as Sterling Shepard. And, and he's supposed to be a possession receiver. How do you explain that? Uh, he's just, he's pretty good. I mean, I think that uh, over time we have, you know, he's not necessarily like a um, a big time, you know, athlete. Uh, he had what, one big year in college, I believe, if I recall correctly. That's right. He was productive in his final year at Oklahoma, was known as a great route runner, but does not have the age-adjusted college dominance that you'd like to see, does not have the great agility, but he has some explosiveness, and we're seeing that this year. I think that what you're seeing with Sterling Shepard is what happens when a good player is pushed down to the number three receiver chair with a bad quarterback. That's the, So the volatility is not his fault. It's all a function of all the forces around him, making it impossible for him to be consistent. Yeah, I mean, he's like, he's like Dustin Pedroia. I don't get it. Danny Amendola is going to be consistent for the next couple weeks. He has to be rostered, right? He's the number one receiver on an NFL football team at age 33. Danny Amendola. Those words just came tumbling from my lips. The Dolphins' three-receiver set without Kenny Stills, with Albert Wilson likely headed to IR, if not already on IR, uh, if he was placed uh, during this podcast, which I know it's going to be happening any minute. Um, Danny Amendola in the slot. Jakeem Grant on the outside. He's fun, right? He's 5'6". Jakeem Grant is like your 79% Tyreek Hill. Yeah, he's exciting. He's a fun player. He's much more fun than Danny Amendola. Amendola's going to get the targets, but Jakeem Grant's going to deliver the splash plays. There's one player where we're allowed to criticize his work ethic. There's a single-player exception, and that's Devontae Parker. Fuck that guy. (laughs) And fuck the Dolphins, because Gettleman going to Gettleman, and the Dolphins are going to Dolphin. Rashard Matthews and Des Bryant are out there, and you let your division rivals sign Rashard Matthews? What are you doing? All Rashard Matthews has ever done is be efficient when called upon. How it took him this long to find a team, I have no idea. But this is the NFL where the teams at the top stay good for a reason and the teams at the bottom stay bad for a reason. And if you're a mismanaged team, the only thing that can elevate you is sublime quarterback play. You need to get a generational talent at quarterback like an Aaron Rodgers. And now we're seeing Aaron Rodgers making Marquez Valdez-Scantling a thing. Can Marquez Valdez-Scantling, MVS, keep a role on offense, or are they going to put him back on the shelf and start Geronimo Allison and make me break windows and picture frames and computer screens around my house? They need to play MVS. Play MVS, man! He adds to their offense such a great dimension opposite Devontae Adams, who 
has become one of the NFL's premier technicians, one of the NFL's uh, better run-after-catch receivers, and one of the NFL's, um, you know, not a separator, not, not a separator. Uh, but one of the NFL's best red zone receivers. I mean, this dude has 10 touchdowns over his last 10 games. Okay. Uh, but what they do not have opposite him is someone who can stretch the field. I mean, Geronimo Allison is like, he runs like 4-7, man. Uh, Marquez Valdez Scantling ran 4-3-7 coming out of USF. He has long arms. He's averaging 18 yards per reception. He's friggin' six foot three. You know, he popped off the, the, the tape during the preseason. I mean, he, this dude really, really stood out out there with Deshaun Kaiser and Tim Boyle uh, throwing him the ball. And it was clear because there were trade rumors involving Randall Cobb uh, at the end of training camp. And it was clear that they wanted to use Marcus Valdez Scantling as their slot receiver. Uh, but they, they wound up not trading Randall Cobb, keeping him, uh, and then he gets hurt. And then Marcus Valdez Scantling jumps in. And I mean, he is he's a big dude with length, speed, and versatility. And they have to find a place for him. The problem is the coaching staff. The obstacle is the coaching staff. And we've seen it happen at the running back position as well. Bingo. This coaching staff insists on underutilizing Aaron Jones and will do it to MVS. You watch. Final rapid fire question. Am I making a mockery of the fantasy football community? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> that has been the accusation on Twitter. Those that admit to never listening to the show and insist that they will not listen to the show because I'm making a mockery of the fantasy football community. The problem is if you don't listen to the show, you don't get the shtick. I'm a bad guy. I'm the bad wrestler who comes to your city and screams into the microphone, I hate New York, and all New Yorkers boo, and I love it. I love it. That's what we do. That's what this show is all about. We're the only show that actively agitates the audience, and those that get the show fucking love it. But we need those that don't get the show out there on social media. Every time the podfather sits in front of a microphone, he's trolling people. And then these people pop up on Twitter, and uh, it's just it's such a feel-good story. I was watching a roast of Donald Trump, and Anthony Jeselnik goes up there, and he's a bad guy. If you're a comedian doing a roast, you're playing the role of bad guy in front of a microphone. That's what I am. And Donald, I'm not even sure if you're aware of this, but the only difference between you and Michael Douglas from the movie Wall Street is that no one's going to be sad when you get cancer. <laughs> Actually set all that up just to play that clip. I backed into it. Now, you know what's coming next. I need the player you qualify for truth or status on, Evan. Rex Burkhead, fantasy playoffs, league winner. Rex Burkhead, fantasy playoffs, league winner. That's the show. You combined the very bold prediction with the truther status question. That's some of your finest work. You merged the question. I mean, that was the most efficient use of a microphone in the history of our show.
we did it. Fucking shitting all over the Giants. More! Rawr! I just remembered that they used their... They used their 2019 third-round pick in the supplemental draft on Sam Beal, a 178-pound cornerback with chronic shoulder problems, and they just placed him and they placed him on injured reserve, like right after they drafted him, and burned 25% of his rookie contract. They have to give up a third rounder for that? Yeah, yeah. They took Sam Beal in the in the supplemental draft in July, and that's going to end up being a top 65 fucking pick. <laughs> Dave Gettleman, he just so personifies the exact fossil that needs to be, you know, buried forever. You called him a a, a failed gym teacher. <laughs> what? Well, I, I <laughs> that's not exactly true, right? I, but I have this in my head. Sometimes I have these narratives in my head. They may not be real, but I like to think they are. And fuck it, you know, it sounds good. He tried out being a gym teacher and it didn't work out. <laughs> so he says, oh, maybe I'll coach football. I'll see how that goes. It may not have played out exactly that way. Like like the Greg Williams fake glasses. Yeah, exactly. He, his, the glasses might be real, but I love this idea of him wearing like a disguise because he's just that fraudulent. <laughs> you can't deny that the goatee looks completely pasted on. Which is funny as fuck to think that, like, he would be wearing fake glasses to look smarter. Because he probably is. I mean, I'm not even... These are educated guesses. You know, my guess is Dave Gettleman as a fucking gym teacher didn't work out well for anybody involved. If he were coming after me for slander, you know, we would have to depose former gym students of his... They'd be like, you know, in their late 30s now, and they could talk about how they, you know, they didn't even participate in the, the drills that he was trying to do. He's treating them like football players. And we knew that Jeff Janis was going to be a future All-Pro because he was productive and he had the athleticism. He just didn't have the opportunity. But but we we knew that, you know, we saw it in that in that playoff game against the Cardinals because he's a hick, because he's a hick. Aaron Rodgers irrationally hated Jeff Janis, and then he ended up on a team run by Hugh Jackson. And you wonder why Jeff Janis isn't in the league. I thought that we had, you know, just totally carpet bombed the whole area and no one had survived. But there are these roaches that just continue to survive in, in the bleakest conditions, and they will continue to just wander over to Twitter when you post something and and make sure that you know that they don't like me and that they're not going to listen to me. And the best is, the best is, haven't listened to him and never will. I would never listen to him. I've never listened to him. But I know I hate him. Wait, I thought I was making a mockery of the fantasy community. Wait, you didn't actually listen to the show? Wait, what's, wait, what's happening? Is this hearsay? What? Twitter hearsay? Oh, never! What they don't get is that it's like a shtick. So if you don't like listen to the show a lot, you know, you don't get that it's like, it's sort of like a game. That's right. It's a game on top of a game on top of a game. The fact that this is even a question tells you all you need to know about Antonio fucking Callaway. If you can shut up the DFS guru mafia elite and make them all crawl away back to their caves... That's a pretty good accomplishment. I mean, that, that, I consider that that's a crowning achievement on a, a really successful 2018 season. 
they don't acknowledge the L, but their silence is the L. Whatever. Let's do the fucking show. <laughs> I can tell when you know that I'm just talking at you for the outtakes. <laughs> You didn't see right through it, you heard right through it. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program, a show favorite. How many games will Hugh Jackson coach for the rest of his lifetime? Well, I think that it should be like negative 12. I don't even like pretzels, that's particularly gross to me. Doug Martin has no upside. Full colon... But I don't watch the games. I don't watch the games. I would. How would I know that? I don't want... No. I, just take that back. I didn't say that. Because he's just that good. Rex Burkett... <coughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Like, like, I'm not reminded of that every day. You're counting Eli Manning as one full quarterback? Also, the second straight year that you used a top 10 pick at the running back position. I mean, what are you doing, man? You, you are getting everything wrong. Start... Geronimo Allison and make me break windows and picture frames and computer screens around my house. I mean, this dude really, really stood out out there with Deshaun Kaiser and Tim Boyle. It's mind melting. That's what it is. You can't think about it too long because your brain will melt. I, I had answers to these, but I'm, I'm pulling a Colm Kelly here. An option play, Dallas Cowboys. Uh, do you think we should go to commercial? Fair catch. And they are called offsetting penalties. If you guys ring in and get this one, I will die. <laughs> Who are the purple people eaters? You gave that, that giant soliloquy on your back? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. Mitchell Trubisky the biscuit. And I pivot to Marlon Mack. Boom, boom, boom. You can't lose. You're welcome, America. Using Snapshare to justify playing Josh Reynolds in cash last week. Fuck out of here. And he stinks. If you're already playing Tomlinson, you don't need Leggett out there. I get that you want a blocking tight end in there. Coaches from the 1960s. I get it. But you don't need two. Come on. Exactly. Super savvy, super smart, clever, forward-looking, getting that first pick in your draft. <laughs> And he stinks. Cam Newton has never had a supporting cast this good in his career. That's true. That's true. That's true. Who has a degenerative spinal condition. And he stinks. And he stinks. And he stinks. Dave Gettleman, what are you doing? Whew, where to begin? Andre Roberts. Andre Roberts. Andre Roberts, just, just leave it there. Just the name Andre Roberts. Andre Roberts. It's all you need to say, man. Andre Roberts. He's out there with Andre Roberts. Okay, Patrick Peterson was put on this planet to play man-to-man -man coverage against number one receivers. Man-to-man -man coverage. Man-to-man -man coverage. Look at the schedule, Evan. Look at the schedule. All <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No one's going to be sorry 
when you get cancer. And that wasn't even the most offensive Jezelnik joke of the Trump roast. This, directed at Mike the Situation from Jersey Shore, was the most offensive. And Sitch, I don't want to tell you how to live your life, man, but if you spent half as much time reading books as you do chasing skanks, <laughs> you probably wouldn't have AIDS. The first play from scrimmage is a run into the back of the frickin' guard. I hate New York. And all New Yorkers boo, and I love it. I love it. I will die. Draft Cheat Pete has a baby dick. You're welcome, America.